3: from kqed
0: this is the california report good morning i'm saul gonzalez in los angeles with russia launching attacks on ukraine on multiple fronts this morning these are very frightening times for anyone with family friends and colleagues in that country that includes thousands of people in the bay area with personal and business ties to ukraine rachel myro has more from kqed's silicon valley desk
1: For years, Ukraine has been one of Silicon Valley's favorite offshore outposts for educated, cheap IT labor. Belarus and Russia, too. My wife is Ukrainian. That's John Sung Kim, CEO of the international outsourcing company JetBridge. And you heard right, he's married to a Ukrainian with in-laws in one of the disputed regions.
2: So we need evacuation plans for them.
1: He also employs more than 20 people in Ukraine, and the talk now at JetBridge is about how to get them out to Western Ukraine or Poland or even here in the San Francisco Bay Area, but...
2: If we have to evacuate them, we also have to evacuate their families. And so this could be 100 people.
1: And then there's the JetBridge team in Belarus, dependent like their co-workers in Ukraine on international money transfers for their salaries.
2: The EU and others are threatening sanctions against Belarus as well as Russia. And so now we have questions like, do we need to extract our people out of Belarus?
1: According to the Ukrainian consulate in San Francisco, about 20,000 people of Ukrainian descent live in the San Francisco Bay Area, at least 100,000 statewide. Other population hubs include the greater Sacramento area and Los Angeles, and many in Silicon Valley go back and forth over the course of their careers between here and Ukraine. Companies like Google, Snap, Oracle, Ring, Grammarly, have long taken advantage of the fact salaries in Ukraine are a fraction of those for comparable jobs here, not to mention Ukraine's highly educated population.
2: As my Ukrainian wife loves to remind me, Everyone in high school must pass calculus.
1: Many companies contacted by KQED declined to identify specific Ukrainian employees out of concern for their safety. A spokeswoman for Grammarly, founded by Ukrainians, noted, "...this is not the first time that our team members in Ukraine have experienced heightened uncertainty. Grammarly's contingency plans include crisis preparedness guidance, temporary relocations, and, if necessary, evacuation." King says
2: I'm still hopeful, but I'm 50 percent as hopeful.
1: And while he discounts comparisons to the chaotic American pullout from Afghanistan, King does urge the Biden administration to reverse course on its decision to evacuate embassy personnel in Kiev.
2: There is so much pent up demand from Ukrainians that have legitimate reasons to travel. And this is an undue economic hardship to just close the embassies. It's creating more chaos within the chaos. Please, Mr. President, open up the embassies.
1: You can hear in his voice that King's worried about a lot more than Jetbridge's bottom line. This international conflict is personal. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Miro in Menlo Park.
0: And here in Los Angeles later this morning, members of the Ukrainian community will protest Russia's attacks on their country. It will take place outside the federal building in West L.A. and is organized by a new group called Putin Go Home. California's reparations task force is meeting today and its members are expected to make an important decision who would qualify to receive reparations? Would it be a lineage-based program for descendants of those who were enslaved in the United States prior to the Civil War and abolition? Or would reparations be allowed to a broader set of Black Americans who were affected by the historical legacy of slavery and its long-term economic and social effects? A reparations meeting yesterday focused on past reparations efforts. The nine-member task force also looked at possible legal implications and heard from UC Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chimarinsky. He spoke about how the U.S. Supreme Court might view race-based reparations. The task force is expected to submit a first report to the state legislature this summer. Santa Clara County's leaders are working on an ordinance to prohibit the possession and manufacture of ghost guns. The move follows some California cities that have passed local bans. The plastic and metal home-assembled guns have no serial numbers, making them untraceable by law enforcement. Santa Clara County District Attorney Jeff Rosen says the county has seen a dramatic increase in the use of these weapons. Including shootings, violent drug dealings, robberies, and drug trafficking. In 2015, we recovered four ghost guns in our county. Last year, 293. Earlier this week, three people were charged with running a ghost gun factory in Santa Clara County. Rosen is working with county supervisors to craft an ordinance stronger than the state law. Crime victims and family members rallied in Sacramento Wednesday, urging lawmakers to back legislation, making it easier for them to access financial support. Advocates say bureaucratic obstacles and eligibility requirements can discourage crime victims from even trying to get the compensation they're due. A bill from State Senator Nancy Skinner could remove some of those barriers. Tanish Hollins is with the group Californians for Safety and Justice.
3: People who have not been acknowledged, people who have never been seen or treated as victims, deserve to be helped.
0: The proposed legislation would also increase financial compensation for people who are exonerated. Let's turn to COVID. Los Angeles County has announced that it will relax its mask mandate in place since July, starting at 12.01 a.m. Friday morning. That means fully vaccinated people with proof will be able to go maskless in places like offices, restaurants, taverns, gyms, and hair salons. Businesses will have a choice of either making masks optional for customers only or for both customers and employees. Those who aren't fully vaccinated will still be able to enter businesses, but they'll have to show proof of a negative COVID test and keep their masks on. Masks in some places will still be mandatory in LA County, like nursing homes or on public transportation. And another California school district, this one in the Central Valley, has ended its indoor masking policy for students. Here's what it sounded like during a special meeting last night of the Clovis Unified School District Board.
1: To hereby end, effective immediately, the protocol of excluding students from their classroom and the district will instead enforce the mask mandate through education-based approaches, such as posting the mandate visibly on each campus, encouraging observance of the mandate, and notifying parents of noncompliance in writing. All in favor? Aye. Uh, aye. Any opposed? The motion carries. <laughs>
0: School Board Vice President Tiffany Stoker-Matson told the large crowd at the meeting that the mask mandate had divided many in the school district.
1: Everyone has bruises from the past couple of years. Teachers, staff, students. It's time to link arms in a positive way and do what we think is best for our students and our staff.
0: The new rules will allow students without masks to remain in classrooms. They had previously been removed from class. School districts in San Diego and the Sacramento area have also defied the state's indoor masking policy at campuses in recent weeks. As California has fought the pandemic, the state's Employment Development Department has grappled with how to effectively combat fraud while still doing right by Californians who need its services. Earlier this week, the agency once again faced this conundrum at a state assembly hearing. KQED's Mary Franklin Harvin explains.
4: One of the main focuses of the hearing was EDD's use of biometric data to verify applicants' identities and the money it's spending on those contracts.
0: We recommend withholding action specifically on the contract for identity verification with the contractor ID.me.
4: Chaz Alamo works for the nonpartisan Legislative Analyst's Office.
0: And ID.me, in essence, confirms that an applicant is who they say they are, By using artificial intelligence to match a video or a photo that the applicant takes to typically a driver's license that they upload to the website.
4: EDD started using the ID.me service in October of 2020, the month before the agency would announce that it had paid out hundreds of millions in fraudulent claims to accounts linked to California jails and prisons. At the hearing, EDD's director said, while the agency is still using facial recognition tech, it's considering following the lead of the IRS, which announced this week, it would no longer require people to use biometric data to access their online accounts. But how did we get here in the first place? The
3: big question that you need to be asking is what was wrong with the previous system? What is wrong with multi-factor identification? What wasn't working before?
4: India McKinney is the director of federal affairs at the San Francisco-based nonprofit digital rights group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. EDD, meet EFF. What McKinney means is, why is all the information that we used to be able to use to prove we are who we say we are, seemingly not good enough anymore for many government agencies?
3: You know, you have your social security number, which you've had to provide in order to get unemployment in the first place. You have a whole bunch of other state-issued documentation. There's a whole bunch of multi-factor identification tools that don't require somebody to have a forward-facing camera, Wi-Fi, broadband, and turn it over their biometric identification to a third-party private company.
4: When I interviewed Blake Hall, the CEO of ID.me, in early 2021, the company and identity theft were both really having a moment.
0: With our network right now, we have 39 million Americans. We add a million every 13 days. Um, It's it's quite clear that our model of empowering consumers is the appropriate one.
4: Hall said countless dark web scammers were gathering and hawking bundles of demographic data, and lots of people were using them to file fake unemployment claims.
0: Literally the last line of defense that is preventing a lot of Californians from being victims of identity theft Is this face match step which verifies that that face is actually like the face of the person going through and it matches the photo on the government id
4: but it's hard to weigh the savings of the identity fraud prevented against the costs of the data we've had to provide to bolster these fraud fighting efforts there are often cited concerns about algorithms incorporating the racial biases of their creators which hall says idme has taken great pains to prevent against for the record But McKinney says
3: if they worked 100 percent of the time for 100 percent of the people, we would still object to the way that they're being used in this way.
4: And that's because
3: we are not set up either at the federal level or at the state level to deal with biometric identity theft.
4: McKinney says she's concerned states are outsourcing these services to avoid having to reinforce their own infrastructures. I think
3: one of the things that California needs to do, as well as the federal government, is there needs to be a modernization of a lot of the systems that they're using.
4: And governments, she says, still have more built-in public oversight than corporations like ID.me. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Hartman.
0: If you're hoping for good news when it comes to the drought, I am sorry. Federal officials are predicting a third consecutive dry year for California, and that's led them to dramatically cut back on water allocations from a huge federal irrigation project that provides water to much of the state. KQED's Katrina Schwartz reports.
1: Every year, the Bureau of Reclamation projects how much water will be available to use in the summer based on winter precipitation and storage levels. This year, many farmers won't be getting any water from the Central Valley Project. Ryan Jacobson is CEO of the Fresno Farm Bureau. He says many farm businesses are going to suffer.
0: This is a very significant hit. No distribution of surface supplies this year means very serious consequences. They now either have to rely upon a limited amount of groundwater and or they just don't plant crops in certain areas.
1: Jacobson would like to see federal and state agencies working together to come up with a more comprehensive plan for water in the state.
0: We need a little bit of everything because California is always on the edge of perpetual drought, and this is just another reminder of how bad things can get so quickly.
1: Many agricultural areas of the state are still feeling the effects of drought going back to 2016. And a UC Merced report released today found that the 2021 drought alone cost California's agricultural sector over a billion dollars. For the California Report, I'm Katrina Schwartz.
0: And that is the California Report for Thursday, February 24th, your production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and follow NPR's continuing coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on this station. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine,
2: protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare, the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement.